This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us for Episode 11 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. In today's program, we share the story of starting and growing a modern international technology company, establishing and nurturing a diverse corporate culture, attracting the right people to join you, building a team, all while tackling some of the biggest, most important challenges facing the security world today. We'll explore the value in having a great idea, in having the audacity to believe you can execute that idea successfully, and just being in the right place at the right time. In case you haven't guessed yet, we're talking about the recorded future story, and joining us to tell it are CEO and founder Christopher Alberg and Andy Palmer, one of Recorded Future's founding board members. Stay with us. We are a bunch of people here who originally came out of what I would call analytics and business intelligence, you know, what people these days like to call big data, uh, big data analysis. That's Christopher Alberg, Recorded Futures CEO and co-founder. A bunch of us worked on a company called Spotfire, the, the data visualization. A few people came from Google, people came from Vertica, people came from a variety of different backgrounds, all from sort of in this world of big data. And it struck us, this is, goes back, uh, call it sort of 2009, that we could apply the same sort of techniques that we did to dealing with structured information, data living in spreadsheets and uh, databases, and that we could apply that to the web, really literally live bolt analysis and visualization onto the web. If we did that, we should be able to build something really interesting analytically. And that was really the founding idea for the company. So what were the early days like? Well, the early days were fun. Look, this this started really literally in sort of what I will call the virtual garage. And, and you know, uh, certainly Andy here has sort of been there many times and, and I've been there a few times when you, you know, we'd like to think about these companies starting in a garage in Silicon Valley. But what's cool about the new world is that they can happen in a lot of different places. And given the, the new world, many times they're in a virtual garage where literally this team originally was uh, between Boston and, and Gothenburg in Sweden. And we had these ideas that, I, as I mentioned, about you know being able to apply analysis on top of the web. And, and so we started, literally said, okay, let's just do it. Let's just, you know, tap into a series of sources, uh, news sources and social media sources and see what sort of information we could extract out of that and what sort of applications we could do and started talking to customers about it. Andy Palmer describes himself as a serial entrepreneur who specializes in accelerating the growth of mission-driven startups. He was Recorded Future's first board member. I think one of the really interesting and compelling things early in the the formation of the company was this idea that there was a need for a temporal index on the web and uh, disambiguating time uh, on the web would be a very, very powerful thing. And when we first started out, we weren't really certain what applications would be most powerful and compelling. 
And for the first couple of years, we looked at many different applications in financial services and security and intelligence. Then there was one of these classic crossing the chasm moments uh, where uh, Christopher uh, called us all up and said, I I really think that cyber is our our thing and cyber threat intelligence is going to be the most powerful and compelling application of this temporal index on the web. And uh, boy, was he right. So this notion of a temporal index of the web, this is not a small idea. This is not an insignificant task to take on. Was there any question at the outset of, as to whether or not this was actually even possible? Yeah, you know, look, uh, we realized that this was a, a complex problem if you're going to do it. you know, And we stated the problem earlier on as big as we ever could. We said, look, what about if we could know everything mankind knew about the future? So that was sort of a, a big, bold idea. Now, you know, kind of to, to Andy's point, when you deal with these sort of just very bold, big ideas, you know, to actually build a business out of it, you need to sort of pick pick an area where you can be successful. And again, cyber threat intel is not exactly a tiny problem to go after in itself. But no, we, we knew that it was a big problem. There were some big fundamental building blocks early on. We had to deal with language at large, human language, big, uh, complex problem in many different languages. So, you know, everything from sort of Arabic and Farsi and Russian and Chinese and these sort of things. Uh, We knew that we dealt with a big data problem. So having to deal with, you know, the storage and scale. And we had to do a lot of interesting analytical techniques. So you sort of bring those three problems together. And you're right. It's it's a big problem that typically has been taken on by nation states. We said, look, we can go at this in a way that's going to compete with the intelligence levels or intelligence capabilities of a nation state. And we wanted to do that and we did it. And at what point did you realize or or, um, or were you confident that you were really on to something and this could really be a thing? No, that's a good question. So I think we had some early sort of snippets of, of success and people tend to think back at false starts, but I think we had sort of snippets of success that maybe they didn't pan out, but it was sort of not until we, we started smelling this opportunity in, in uh, cyber where, you know, originally it was around the hacktivists who were pre-announcing their attacks. And there was like now the, the, the sort of the idea of a temporal index really came into its own. And, and we could sort of figure out like, look, Anonymous is actually saying they're going to attack, you know, Bank XYZ next Friday. And we could pre-alert those guys on that. That turned out to be very powerful. But, you know, non-trivial. And there were, you know, times when, uh, you know, we were walking down paths that didn't pan out. And the amazing thing about the early team at Recorded Future was there was sort of a commitment to fail fast and not no no fear, actually kind of a, a hunger almost to try lots of new applications very, very aggressively and to not be discouraged if those applications didn't turn out to be uh, compelling or interesting, either on the technical side or on the business side. Um, but the whole team was very, very deliberate and aggressive in looking, seeking for the, these, this application where these temporal indexes were going to uh, have, have a huge impact analytically. So in the early days, as you're growing this company, tell me, what was it like to attract people to come on this journey with you? So, you know, we did 
largely in the early days, what, what you typically do, you go to the people you know. So, you know, you go to people who sort of either you worked with before or people that you know that you wanted to work with before from before. There's sort of the, the people you know you can sort of suck in. And then there's the people you've been dying to work with, but it just hasn't worked out before, you know, be, you know, because timing, typically timing hasn't been right. And that's what we did. And and the sort of the early band here of 10, 15 people were all those. And, you know, there's an amazing amount of, of those people still here. In fact, pretty much everyone. So, you know, very loyal and, and has been a great team to build from because you sort of built a culture in there that is just very strong about, you know, that has been through those early tough days, if you want to call it that, and then until it, you crack the nut and, and really figure it out and then going through the journey from there. So I don't, there's no magic, you know, you obviously got to make sure that you have something interesting for people to join in on, but there's in those two buckets, the people you sort of worked with before and the people you've been dying to work with. Yeah. Well, and it, it, I think it's also, there are a lot of studies that have been done on entrepreneurship and, you know, my, my portfolio at COA, uh, at COA Labs, we have more than 60 or so companies that we've invested in in some way, shape or form. And the, but you, when you go back and you look at all these studies that have been done on entrepreneurship quantitatively, there's only two things that actually differentiate, um, you know, great companies from these mediocre startups. And those two things are they raise a relatively small amount of money. And then the other thing is they have founders and early employees that have worked together in the past. And so the way that Recorded Future was built is very consistent with the empirical findings for what makes a great new company. And um, and that was very true. And I, I think the, the, this point that Christopher made that it wasn't just people that we had worked with before, but it was also people that we had desired to work with, where we attracted these talented folks that maybe the timing wasn't right before we hadn't been able to, uh, to get them, you know, uh, into our, you know, into our fold that, um, Christopher was amazing at, at bringing these people in and, uh, you know, getting them motivated around the mission of the company. Take me through that though. I mean, as you're starting a company, you're also building a culture. What was the process for developing and growing the culture of the kind of company you wanted recorded future to be? It's a hard problem and, and you sort of, it's hard to codify exactly how it happens. You know, some level it sort of happens automatically. You, you sort of just build and run and, and a lot of the early things you do are what forms that, you know, like the fact that you don't give up, the fact that you work hard through these problems, you fail fast, you know, a lot of those sort of things, you stand up for each other. You, you there are a lot of things you got to do right. Um, now, we tried early on also to write down some of the principles for, you know, that we wanted to live up to so that you don't just let it be what it happens. But we wrote down the one that always is my sort of favorite is, you know, don't leave any threads hanging or maybe more importantly, the ball is always in your court. Don't sort of expect that somebody else deals with a problem. I'm, I'm sort of uh, not the usual person to use sports analogies, but the <laughs> ball is always in your court really is the, the point that you don't don't expect somebody else to deal with a problem. You know, really just, you know, it, it, it's it's with you. And, you know, there's a series of those and, and we created a group here eventually at the company who we made it their job to actually, uh, or, or at least a part-time job to, to take care of these uh, 
cultural values and, and keep developing them. But it's hard. And we've sort of we're a very international company spread across the Atlantic. And, you know, how do you build, you know, the, the culture into that? And I love how people talk about that. Culture has got to be sort of an ever growing tent because, you know, as you add more people, you add different countries, you add different, you know, new competences. It's all got to fit in. We went from sort of originally as a big data company or analytics company, then becoming more of an in intelligence company. And then when we figured out cyber, we had to sort of bring in this whole notion of security into this and hire people with security background, which, you know, are a little bit different. So we had to sort of build a culture that could fit them in too. So, you know, it, it's a tough problem, but it but it's a lot of fun if you, if you figured out how to nurture it. So. It's so hard to do well. And one of the dimensions that's the most impressive is the international nature of the culture from the very beginning. Uh, Christopher made a very intentional decision to have the uh, software engineering team based in, in Gothenburg and, and the business team based, based in Boston. And it's hard enough to do a startup when you're all in the same room together. It's really, really challenging when the company is split between two locations from day one. But it also sort of causes you to build certain muscles that you might not otherwise do. It takes extra effort, but once you have those muscles built, there's tremendous benefit from being an international company right out of the right out of the gate. And there's a huge benefit of having our engineering team in Gothenburg specifically. So, you know, it's sort of a characteristic of recorded future is. You know, and Christopher in general as an entrepreneur, uh, not doing just the easy thing, but doing the, the harder thing that's that's really worth doing is, is something that I think characterizes the culture at the company. Yeah, it strikes me that, that you'd have a, a built-in sort of uh, automatic diversity of thought by having cultures spread out across the world that way. Um, how important is that to you to have that diversity of thought? So I'm, I'm thrilled that you asked that because that actually is, I think that's sort of the nature of an intelligence company. If you think about one, you know, you really, you know, hit on the, the nail on its head there that if you're going to build an intelligence company that is not just sort of on one path, because, you know, it really can't be like with one of the core sort of tenets or core aspects of an intelligence company, it got to be multiple points of view that eventually can coalesce into what it needs to be. But, you know, that's so so important. And, and how do you try to get to that is through diversity. Now, you know, it's not easy to build a tech company that is diverse because, you know, you sort of end up with the same same crowd of people that everybody else. But international, you know, international diversity is at least one aspect that you can go after. So key and in particular for an intelligence company. Absolutely. So let's move on and talk about some of the people that you serve. Um, you start up, and of course, obviously, you need to start attracting clients. What was that initial process like of attracting people to this new company? Knowing that we originally sort of the, the problem and the challenge that we went after was in intelligence. We sort of naturally gravitated to Washington, Washington DC and, and started working with the intelligence agencies. Uh, we partnered up with Incutel early on. Uh, that was a great, uh, you know, decision and, you know, just a tremendous success in working with them. They became a fantastic, you know, we'll call it sponsor of the company. And, you know, some of the early work programs we did, we did with them have to this day fundamentally influenced things. You know, the whole language component that I talked about before, for example. So that's been great. 
Then beyond that, uh, some of the early interactions with clients in the banking sector in particular, I won't get, go, get into names here. People are really sensitive about that. But some of the early meetings we had with people in the banking sector uh, in threat intelligence just became you know, profound to the company. And, and we started building around that. And by now, banking and finance is our largest sector or industry segment there. But then over time, we've really followed as, as the threat intel market has sort of started happening at large. We've been naturally following that. And maybe now to at this point, we're actually being part of building it. And, and it's, it's been a great experience. This, the set of people that we get to interact with is fantastic. Uh, you know, I love working with these Intel guys. Sometimes you work with people who have spent 20 years in government and know more about Intel than most people have forgotten. And sometimes we work with people who know very little about it, but are just very eager to build a program and we can be more helpful to them. So, you know, it can be either, either side of that. You know, one, one of the things that's so challenging in these early stage companies is getting the timing right. Uh, it's very uh, common for people to be too early or too late. And you know, Christopher probably takes it for granted uh, because he does it instinctually. But uh, Recorded Future was very deliberately in the right place at the right time to be the industry leader in threat intelligence uh, because uh, it's it, the this technology is in the technology that they've developed is so essential for doing great cyber threat intel, but you know it, it done five years earlier, even two two years earlier, it, it probably would have felt too early or premature. Um, and if Recorded Future were just starting to come together today, like maybe there are a bunch of new companies that are starting around threat intel. Well, actually, they're late to the party. And so getting the timing right, I think, was is really challenging. And um, the company is at the right place at the right time. As the company grows uh, and, and you increase your capacity and your ability to do things and you bring more people on, how do you ensure that you're still able to be nimble? It's mm, a great question. And, and that's the one that I think keeps all entrepreneurs awake. And, and you know, you want to do it in a good way. So, you know, we're, we're now, you know, uh, you can sort of back into it via LinkedIn and so on. So I, I don't think it's really a secret, you know, 130, 140 people or so. We're soundly uh, across the U.S. And, and, uh, and North America at large and in Europe and starting to get into Asia. So, you know, getting some size to things here. And being nimble, you know, wins pretty much over anything and everything. You know, it's very easy to sort of think that a lot of other things are important. But, you know, especially in something like Intel, where, you know, there literally is an adversary on the other end who will be fiddling with everything. We're not dealing with a static business problem here that we need to solve. But the the better you are at solving the ad business problem, the adversary is going to take more notice of you and, and literally sort of work against you. Uh, so as Dan Gear likes to say, there is a sentient opponent. There's literally, there's a sentient opponent to, to recorded future there. So that means that you really have to be nimble because otherwise if the competition doesn't kill you, the, the bad guy is going to kill you. So, so you literally have, have that to deal with. And, you know, I think you just got to make sure that, you know, follow Andy Groove here and be mindful of that only the paranoid survives and, and just wake up every morning and assume that anything and everything that you're doing today might be wrong. 
and and question everything all the time. Realize that when you come into a new quarter, uh, you know, every 90 days, just assume that, look, we may have to do some significant changes and, and uh, really just be mindful of that all the time. I, I think there's another thing too, organizationally, that uh, is true at Google as well as other places where, you know, the, the primary method to organize the company is more like a, a special forces organization than it is like a like a large army. And you, Christopher being a, a special forces guy by training uh, is probably uh, by default sort of prone to organize into small teams of three to five people uh, that have all the skills required in order to do what it takes. But these three to five person teams are really at the core of organizational productivity in a, in a company that's moving as fast as recorded future is. And um, I, I think that's a, a modern method for, for organizing and staying fast, even, even as you get very large. And the trick is obviously to, to try to do that and still obviously build processes that are more traditional in nature as you get bigger, because, you know, it's a big difference between serving two customers and 10 customers and 100 customers and 200 and getting on 400. So, yeah. you know, figuring that out is, is non-trivial. But it's interesting because I, I think that the, the best Intel organizations in the in the in the government they tend to operate on these smaller focused absolutely. teams yeah. that are very independent and can can just move fast. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Let me switch gears a little bit and ask you about some practical things. Um, I want to ask you about money. When you started up, how were you initially financed? And at what points along the way did you decide that it was time to assemble a board, bring in investors and things like that? So, you know, look, we again, we're in the virtual garage for probably a year or so just self-financing it. And, you know, we, because we sort of worked it on the side, uh, nighttime, uh, whatever, sleep time, uh, you know, like uh, so. so and we certainly didn't pay out any salaries in that time period. Basically, the cost was, you know, an Amazon server or two or three. Uh, so, you know, we. People like to call it bootstrapped or whatever you want to call it in, at that time period. But then we we early on said, look, if we're going to scale this and, and really take it, you know, do it seriously, we want to get investors invo- involved and not necessarily just for the money, but we think that will bring discipline and build, build structure and really professionalize the company because we knew that this was, this was something that could be big. So and here sort of hooking up with Andy and who I've known from, I don't know, it's, it's like an eternity, Andy. Forever. Yeah. <laughs> Forever. <laughs> no, but for a long time and, and getting Andy involved first before we did anything and, and put some structure around that. And then we were lucky to get Rich Miner from Google Ventures involved and Incutel. Uh, Simon Davidson from Incutel that really helped us sort of shape our ideas and and forced us to put structures around those. They came came on board as investors and that really put a sound foundation to the company. And I think I think also, uh, again, you know, Christopher tends to take these things for granted, but he was building a team. I, I felt when I, I came on board uh, and when Rich came on and Simon in the early days, uh, there was it was clearly and deliberately Christopher building a team around him that was no different than any other team. And uh, one of the things that that Recorded Future and, and Christopher does uniquely is he actually puts the board to work um, all the time. And uh, it's very demanding being a board member 
uh, at Recorded Future because Christopher has high expectations. And I actually think this is that the next generation of board membership is going to be more like what Christopher does at Recorded Future, where we're all responsible for uh, actually delivering value to the company and being very actively involved. It's not about just showing up to meetings and checking a bunch of boxes. Um, and it's been that way from the beginning, and that, that culture still persists on the board. As you're looking forward, as you're looking towards the future, looking, trying to look toward the horizon, when it comes to threat intelligence and cybersecurity, what are the specific challenges that you all see us facing, the things that are, that are growing and the things that maybe you think we're going to be able to get under control? So, you know, you, you sort of have to put this in, in the context of cybersecurity at large or information security, but, you know, we've all sort of gotten used to call it cybersecurity. And it's probably right in the, to use that word now that it sort of has influenced profoundly business and politics and warfare. And it really is part of the, you know, it's one of the biggest challenges that, that we have as a world that we sort of, we A, very much rely on these the, these networks, I think is the right word, to, to run as a world. And we then see, you know, whether it's criminals or intelligence agencies and so on, very aggressively try to take advantage of the vulnerabilities in those. And we got to, you know, help put the put a stop to that. We got to be, you know, figure out how we get this under control. And and so intelligence and, and threat intelligence can be one of those core components in taking control of badness out there and really bring things back to a better place. But it's going to be a 10 year long journey. This is not something where you sort of you launch a new product module and hit the easy button and, and suddenly we have cybersecurity. And this is a big play. Uh, you know, people spend a lot of money on cybersecurity and at large, you hear numbers like 80 billion, 100 billion, you know, arguably fairly crazy numbers. Uh, intelligence will play a big role in that because we've sort of been relying on just wait for bad things to happen and come in and clean them up. And, and you know, one of the few ways you have to actually get out ahead of things is intelligence. And this is a big opportunity. And so we think about this as a big play, this is a long play. We haven't even started. I, you know, I think we're sort of one percent into the opportunity. This is the early days, and that's why some of the things that we've talked about here today, culture and the sort of companies you build, is so important because this, there's a long play here. Andy, I, I'm sort of reminded that this is a huge, huge area to work in. It's very important not only to, uh, you know, our economy and our our governments, but also you know to. Uh, society in, in general. And, you know, I'm reminded of this statement that our friends out in California like to make that software is eating the world. And I, I really believe that if software is eating the world, then cyber threat intelligence is uh, the thing that's going to prevent you from uh, being poisoned to death. Um, and it is a very, very critical function that's being played by Recorded Future and other companies in the uh, cyber security and cyber threat intelligence space to make sure that as we rely more and more on software and technical infrastructure for our day-to-day -day lives, that we're protected from danger. And I, that's going to persist. This is going to be a very, very important thing uh, to all of us going forward. And as the, the latest round of, of ransomware, um, you know, would, would suggest, none of us are, are safe from this, that this is a real threat that exists in the world. And uh, we all have to be aware and have to get better um, at understanding the cyber threats that face us every single day. Our thanks to Christopher Alberg and Andy Palmer for joining us and sharing their stories. 
Before we let you go, don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email. And every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. You can also find more intelligence analysis at recordedfuture.com slash blog. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. And we hope you'll consider leaving a review for us on iTunes. It really is a great way to help spread the word. The Recorded Future podcast team includes coordinating producer Amanda McKeown, executive producer Greg Barrett. The show is produced by Pratt Street Media with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.